I think we're going to get started now. Um, Dr. Shana Strauch, Strouch Schick, I apologize, is a fellow of the Center for Israel Studies at Yeshiva University and teaches Talmud and Halacha in Michalet Mevaser Yerushalayim and Matan in Israel and in the Drisha Summer Kolel. In 2011, she became the first woman to be awarded a PhD in Talmudic literature from Bernard Ravel Graduate School at Yeshiva University, where she also completed an MA in Bible. She studied in the graduate program in advanced Talmud at Stern College and has held postdoctoral fellowships at Bar Ilan and Haifa University. Her upcoming book, Between Thought and Deed, Intention in Talmudic Jewish Jurisprudence, examines the role of intentionality in the development of Talmudic law and is being published by Brill. And now, without further ado, Dr. Schick. Thank you so much. And um, welcome everyone who I can't see, but um, I can feel the presence. Um, it's very exciting to be here, to be able to learn Torah with uh, people all over the world. I'm here in uh, Jerusalem and uh, it's nighttime here, but uh, good afternoon to those of you in the East Coast and uh, good evening to my fellow Israelis. Um, so this is a three-part uh, series, which is going to explore different aspects of intentionality with regard to the holidays of Tishrei. Today, we're gonna to focus on Rosh Hashanah. Um, we'll talk about Yom Kippur on the next time, and the last time we'll go to uh, Sukkot. Um, and all of them, we're gonna see how and whether in, uh, in uh, intentionality plays a role in um, each of these mitzvot. Um, okay, so tonight we're gonna, to gonna focus on Rosh Hashanah. And um, specifically, the mitzvah of hearing the shofar. And um, so when we look to early rabbinic law in the Mishnah and the Tosefta, um, we find that ritual mitzvot, which involve doing kind of ritual acts, such as blowing the shofar, are very much closely tied to a person's eternal devotion. And in, in indeed, when we look at the Mishnah, we find that when it does a talk about whether a person needs a kavanah and intentionality to fulfill a mitzvah, we find that it always rules that one must have a requisite in attention in order to fulfill their mitzvah, in order to fulfill their obligation. So um, in our first source, and I'm going to share the screen. Some of them are English, some are, I mean, I have an English, but you have in Hebrew as, as well. So in the first source you have, um, which is Mesechet uh, Brachot, and, it, and it's about the mitzvah of uh, Kriyat Shema, our daily obligation to recite uh, Shema and accept, you know, the yoke of heaven upon us. So it says in the Mishnah there, Bet Aleph, in the Brachot, Torah. The person's reading through the Torah, and they happen to read the portion of the Torah, which contains the Pasuk of Shema Yisrael. And at the same time that you're reading the portion of the Torah of Shema, it happens to also be the time that you have to say Shema. It's Shema, uh, Kriyat Shema. Im kivein libo yatsa, 
If you uh, direct your heart, you fulfill the obligation. If you do not uh, direct your heart, you do not fulfill your obligation. So by uh, direct heart, heart in the ancient world is the seat of the intellect. So what that means is if you have a kavana, if you intend, then you fulfill your mitzvah, your obligation of saying Shema. But if you did not intend, then you uh, did not fulfill your mitzvah. And we find the same halacha is uh, uh, corroborated in the Tosefta, another uh, Tanaitic work from the same time of the Mishnah. So that's our first mitzvah we find in the Mishnah on this matter. When we uh, skip to Mesechet Rosh Hashanah, we find something very uh, similar. So it's the next source, number two. Misha over Ahare Beit HaKneset. One, here you have the English, one was passing behind a synagogue. So you're walking past the shul. Or you happen to live right near the shul. Your house is next to shul. The Shema Kol Shofar. And you're walking past the shul on Rosh Hashanah and you hear them blowing the shofar inside. Or you, you hear them reading the scroll of Hester. And that's on a perm. So you happen to be walking past the shul and you happen to hear the chauffeur being blown at the time that you have to hear it being blown. And again, the Mishnah rules the same way we saw before. If you uh, direct your heart, I mean, if you have in, uh, in attention, you fulfill your obligation. But if not, if you do not have in attention, you do not fulfill your obligation. And now it says, makes it clear that this is not just about doing an act. It's about having your mindset in line with the act. Even though this person heard and this person heard, two people do the same exact act of hearing the shofar being blown, but nevertheless, only one of these two people fulfill the mitzvah. Why? One person directed his heart and one did not uh, uh, direct his heart. And only the one who uh, directs their heart, that person is the one who fulfills their obligation to hear the uh, shofar. And one more time, this is reiterated in Masechet Megigila, the tractate dealing with the holiday of Purim. If you are writing the scroll of Esther while reading it, or you uh, are a, a dorsha, you're reading and expanding it, or, magia, or you're you know, reading and make, and uh, checking for mishadakes, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, in Hebrew, of course. Again, even though you are reading the Megillah at the time that it has to be read, you will only fulfill the mitzvah, you only fulfill your obligation if you uh, directed your heart. So it's very clear from these three cases that the Mishnah talks about that one can only fulfill their obligation if they also have a kavana. They have some sort of mental and uh, 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 intentionality. It seems to do the mitzvah. Now it doesn't uh, define what the kavana is. I mean, what does it mean to uh, direct your heart? Um, so. The next source I brought for you, source number four, which is the Mishnah that comes right after source number two. Meaning first Mishnah says, if you're walking past a shul and you hear the shofar, if you intend your heart, you, you fulfill the mitzvah. If not, you do not fulfill it. The very next Mishnah, which comes after that is source number four, which seems like a kind of unrelated Midrashic narrative. The, the, the Mishnah there says, 
It brings the, the Pasuk from Shemot, uh, and it, it was when Moshe, when Moses lifted his hands, and then the Israelites um, were uh, stronger than the Amalekim. So when uh, Moshe held his hands, Israel was winning, and when he lowered his hands, Israel was being de defeated. So ask the Mishnah. Do the hands of Moshe make war or a break war? This, this Pasuk is coming to uh, tell us that it wasn't about Moshe's hands. It's not the act he did. Rather, as long as Israel looked heavenward and Mishabdim at Liban, they they, sub, they, sub, uh, they subjugated their heart to their uh, father in heaven. They were victorious. If not, they um, fell. And it brings the, the same uh, idea with regard to the copper uh, snake motion made in the wilderness when the Israelites were uh, suffering from a plague. And again, it says, is looking at uh, serpents going to make, uh, going to heal you? heal you or not. And again, it says, well, when you look heavenward and you again, Mishabed at Liban, you uh, subjugate your heart to God, then that's what will heal. But if not, um, it, it won't work. So what is this Mishnah coming to say? Yes, it's saying, Jirash, looks like it has nothing to do with it, but rather it's very much related. It's not enough to do an act of hearing the chauffeur, of having Moshe raise his arms. It has to be accompanied by a subjugation of the heart. And notice the word Mishabdim et Liban, lave. That same word, lave, appears in both Mishnah Zion, source number two, and source number four, Mishnachet. Now that's not a coincidence, for in other occurrences of this very same Midrash, um, it lacks the word lave in it. So it looks very much like the compilers of the Mishnah, Rabbi Huda Hanasi, uh, purposely put that word laven to make a connection, say, what does it mean to have a kavana of the lave when you are doing a mitzvah? Perhaps it means to uh, subjugate your heart to God, to say, I am doing this mitzvah because it's what God wants of me, um, be because that is my way of being an evet Hashem, a servant to God. So, um, this is just the overwhelming feel. Yes. We have a couple questions in the chat relevant to what you just said. So I just want to oh. raise them for you. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you. So I have two. Um, one from Robert Cohen says, in the case of Megillah Esther, isn't the mitzvah to hear the Megillah rather than to read it? And then the other question is from Shira Hoffer. Um, and she was wondering that the examples you gave were from people coming upon the action by accident or surprise. And what about someone who intends to do a mitzvah, but they don't really mean it or feel it? like someone who uh -huh. does halakhically but doesn't mourn, for example? Okay, those are both excellent uh, questions. So I'll answer the second one first. We're going to see, I mean, yeah, we are going to see that. But yeah, I, I don't know. Now, it's possible to read the source of Mishnah number uh, four, not as a way to define the uh, Kavanah in Mishnah number two, but rather, maybe it's more lifnim mishirat hadin. Halachically, you just have to intend to do the mitzvah. But if you want to go over and above, mishabdim et libam lafiyah shabbat shaman, you have to also uh, 
subjugate your heart. But that's not what you have to do to fulfill the mitzvah. Now, a, a support for that would be, this is a larger issue of what is the role of Midrash? Is it coming to a teach halacha or is it come to tell you um, other, other ways to uh, do the halacha. I mean, it's not that this is the way you have to do the halacha, but it's an alternate. It's more of like going above what the halacha wants of you. in the you just have to know you're doing a mitzvah. I mean, it's not that just walk past a shul and be like, oh, there's a shul for it. That's nice. No, I have to want to do the mitzvah. But maybe above and over that is, you have to also say, I'm accepting God as my king, you know, et cetera. So it's possible that you don't need both. And we're going to see when we look to the uh, Talmud, you absolutely uh, do not need even a minimal amount of kavanah. But we're going to get to that soon. In terms of the second, the, the first question, so that is a very big issue. What's the mitzvah of Megillah? But what do we say? And do women have a mitzvah just to hear or to read? That's a machloket between the acharonim. And so therefore, but the mitzvah is definitely to read the Megillah. And maybe some say maybe women only have an obligation to hear it. And therefore, according to that view, if a woman was the one reading the Megillah, she couldn't um, fulfill the obligation for a man because a man has an obligation to read it. But it's a machloket whether women's obligation is to hear it or to read it. So according to those who say women could read it, then women could fulfill the obligation for men. So the mitzvah is to read it. So those are both excellent questions. Um, okay, so that's the Mishnah. And um, there's just one more uh, Mishnaic uh, source I want to bring, which is not in the sources, but it's just kind of like it. So, and it really relates, it just kind of drives home the point of how much of a role a kavanah plays in the Mishnah. So in Mishnah, and also in Abrachot, Perakeh, Mishnah Aleph 5, one it says, So one should only stand up to pray, meaning Shemona Esrei, with a serious frame of mind, Safari translated, you know, like heavy head. Then it talks about Hasidim uh, Harishonim, the original or pious ones, you show him They would wait a whole hour and then pray. So they could uh, get their hearts ready. So they could uh, direct their hearts to a God. Um, now, interestingly, in the, the Bible, it's like, well, you pray three times a day, and if they prepare an average time, when do they work? So that is a question, and maybe you're wondering that too. The rabbis also did. And this is certainly not normative being behavior. This is the Hasidim. It's not Hasidim with a, a strimal on their head. This just refers to uh, people who are very uh, 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 pious, a group of, of uh, people. Um, I'm not sure who they were, but just underscores uh, the point of the great role that uh, Kabbalah Talib, the in, uh, attention of the heart, plays in the Mishnah. And I think that kind of makes uh, sense when you uh, think about doing mitzvot rituals. I think most of us would uh, tend to agree that makes uh, sense that if you're a religious a person, it's not just the act. You should have some sort of an eternal devotion as well. Um, I would think maybe that's what we would uh, originally think. However, when we look at the Bavli on this uh, sugya, 
we find a very surprising uh, shift. Um, we find something very uh, diff different. Okay, so I have the English here, but I'll read the Hebrew in your source sheet. Source number five. So they sent the, the following ruling to the father of uh, Shmuel. Uh, Shmuel, of course, is the great first uh, generation of Babylonian rabbi. And his uh, father is actually one of like the earliest rabbis we are aware of living in Ababel. Um, so this is what they sent to his father. If a person is compelled to eat matzah on the holiday of Pesach, yatzah, you fulfill your obligation. Okay, so you didn't want to eat it, so I'm going to put it in your mouth. Basically, that seems to be what the case is. So even though you I didn't want to, you were made to do it, it seems, you fulfill your mitzvah on Pesach. Rava, um, a fourth generation Babylonian Amora, uh, and one of the most influential rabbis of the Babli, infers the following. Amar Rava, Zot, Omeret, Hatokea, Lashir, Yatsa. This would imply that one who blew the shofar, Amrosh Hashanah, to make music, meaning, and not to fulfill their obligation, but they love the uh, sound of the shofar. It's like a jazz song. They fulfill their religious obligation, Amrosh Hashanah. Um, now, that is a striking rule because it explicitly goes against what is said in the Mishnah. But that's not what the Gemara says at first. It will get to that, but first it says, well, peshita hainuha, that's obvious. If you can fill your mitzvah of matzah when being a force too, you can, of course, you can fulfill the mitzvah of shofar even if you didn't want to. So answers like, Mar, no, it's not an obvious uh, analogy. What might you have thought? Maybe in the case of eating, when you eat, that is what the mitzvah is. So as long as you're eating it, you've done your mitzvah, whether you want it to or not. The very uh, uh, fact that you're eating it, your body's getting nourishment, you are just completely engaged in the act of eating matzah. But maybe haha, but here in the case of shofar, it says in the Torah, it says it's a remembrance of hearing the shofar. So if you just hear it playing music, you're not doing it for the purpose of zichron tiruah. So maybe you would have thought matzah is not like shofar, so kamash malan it is. And then concludes that the Gemara, Alma Kisava Rava, so consequently this shows that Rava holds mitzvot ein tzrichot kavana, that religious precepts do not require an attention. Now, this is a striking rule, um, primarily because it goes against what we saw in the Mishnah. Now, of course, we only saw four uh, cases in the Mishnah. We saw uh, Kriyat Shema, Shofar, Megillah, Tefillah. Now, the fact that the Mishnah didn't uh, formulate a general rule is not surprising because that's just not the way the Mishnah generally writes. The Mishnah speaks in uh, cases. 
So it brought it only in individual cases. So it would seem that it likely held that all mitzvot require in attention, but we don't know that for sure. But at least what we do know is that what does require in attention? Hearing the shofar. And what does Rava say? If you blew the shofar for music, you fulfill your obligation. And from there, the Gemara, the anonymous adapters of the Gemara infer mitzvot ain't srichot kavana. Um, so this goes against the Mishnah, and indeed, that's exactly what the Gemara now raises against Rabbah. The fact that he explicitly contradicts the three Mishnayot that we saw, and, and it'll bring other ones as well. So the first challenge it brings from Masechet Brachot, the first Mishnah we saw. Um, Itve, so he challenged Rabbah. Um, one's reading the Torah, and the time of reading the Shema benediction arrives. So it says straight out, you only fulfill your obligation of Shema if you had a, a Kavana. So Rabbi, how could you say you don't need a Kavana to blow the shofar and then therefore mitzvot in tzrichot a Kavana? Says the Gemara, no, you got it wrong. You thought my love, um, my love, do you think this does this not mean you had an attention to fulfill the mitzvah? No, you were wrong. What's the kavana you need? You just need the intent to read the Pasuk of Shema. Wait a minute, he was reading in the Mishnah. That's exactly what the case is. If one is reading the Torah, then the time of reading uh, arrives, you only fulfill the mitzvah if you had in attention. Says like Mara, no, again, you misunderstood. How was the person reading in this Mishnah? It was Bikore Lehage. This person was reading, ooh, what's that? Reading to correct. But you weren't actually reading it for the sake of reading. If you were just kind of making sure all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed, then you weren't reading it. You have to have a minimal intent to do the act of reading. More than that, would say Rava, you don't need. Okay, now it brings another challenge. Our next uh, Mishnah that we saw, Mishnah um, 3.7. If one was passing behind a synagogue, or whose house was near a synagogue. If he intended his heart, he fulfills the mitzvah, his obligation. If not, he's not fulfilled his obligation. So again, the Mishnah says straight out, you only fulfill the mitzvah of a chauffeur if you had a, a, a kavanah. And again, says Gemara, my love, doesn't this mean you had intent to fulfill the mitzvah? So again, the Gemara says no. That's not what if he directs his heart means here. All it means is lishmoa. You just have to direct your heart to hear it. You have to intend to hear it. Lishmoa v'hashama. What do you mean he has to have to intend to hear it? He uh, does hear it. That's the case. You hear the sound of the shofar. Says Gemara, no. In this case, the person uh, didn't know he was hearing a shofar. Savar chamor ba'almahu. He thought it was the sound of a donkey uh, brain. It sounded like hee-haw, so he thought it was a, a donkey. So in order to fill the mitzvah of shofar, you don't have to have in a tent to do the mitzvah. 
you have to just have a bare minimum intent to know that you're doing the act of hearing the chauffeur. Now it brings another objection, because maybe you could say, well, Rava's case is a, is a person who blows a chauffeur. Maybe if you blow it, that's uh, different than hearing it. But the Gemara and, uh, uh, and anticipates that and brings another Mishnah. And they bring one more objection. It says in the Mishnah, if the one who listens intends, but the one who sounds the shofar does not intend, or vice versa, or mashmiya below nitzkavim shomea, or the one who sounds a shofar intends, the one who listens does not intend, lo yatsa. Neither of them fulfill their obligation. Now, so it makes a sense. You can have a case where the person who hears does not intend to hear a chauffeur, um, but, but, but the one who does blow does have it in attention. But, but how can you have a case where the person who blows the chauffeur doesn't have the intent to blow the chauffeur? I mean, how is that uh, possible? If we're saying that in intent just means intent to uh, uh, do the act, then how do you ever have this uh, case of the one who sounds the chauffeur does not intend? How could you have such a case? It's not uh, uh, possible if it's just about blowing the chauffeur. He obviously knows he's blowing the chauffeur, um, and yet we can have a case where he does not have intent, and they're not Yodzei the Mitzvah. So says the Gemara, no, we can find a case where the one blowing does not have the bare minimum amount of intent. How? It's where Dilma de Kamenavach Nebuche, he's making like a, a barking sound. So he's not trying to blow the chauffeur. He's just like making a barking sound with the chauffeur. So if that's what the person blowing the chauffeur is doing, then that doesn't count. So throughout this Gera, it offends uh, Rava's position, uh, showing that even in Mishnayot, which seem very straightforwardly uh, to uh, reacquire requisite and attention when doing a mitzvah, the Gemara uh, here downplays that in uh, attention as not intention to do a mitzvah but rather as intent to just do an act which constitutes a mitzvah. And the Gemara brings more challenges to Rava. Um, and now it brings a final one in the name of Rava's contemporary Abaye. So Abaye asks, well, wait a minute. According to you, Rava, if you don't need in attention to do a mitzvah, then if someone sleeps in a sukkah, when there's no longer a mitzvah to sleep in the sukkah, you should automatically uh, violate the prohibition against adding onto mitzvot. Because you don't need a kavan to do the mitzvah. So by uh, doing an act which constitutes a mitzvah and that you know you're a doing, you should automatically uh, violate the asur of lo tosif, that you're not allowed to add to mitzvot. And by sleeping in the sukkah on the eighth day, you add on to that, even if that wasn't your in, in a tent. So that's a challenge raised against Rava. And then the, the Gemara maintains Rava 
by applying a new rule? And answers rather, no, you misunderstand Abaye. When we say you don't need kavana, that's to fulfill a mitzvah. But you do need kavana to violate an isor. So says Rabba, Rabba Amar, let's say lobai kavana. Not so, says Rabba, for I maintain that mitzvot. Commandments can only be, oh, sorry, I skipped a point here. So first he says, sorry, I skipped one line. He says, let's say lobai kavana. To fulfill does not require in a, in attention, lavor bai kavanah, but to violate does require in attention. Then Rava says uh, another rule, elamar Rava, let's say bai kavanah, to, uh, to, um, to fulfill a mitzvah requires kavanah, lavor bismano lo bai kavanah, sho bismano bai kavanah, and to uh, violate um, a prohibition in its own time does not require in attention to uh, violate, not in its own time, does require in attention. Finally, it goes to the final rule of Rava, which is right here. Rava says, finally, um, let's say the by Kavana. Um, commandments can only be transgressed for answer them in their proper times. Intention not required to fulfill one's religious duty. The intention is required to transgress by adding to the commandments. So basically, Rava makes a distinction uh, 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 between doing a mitzvah, which he does not require a kavanah. You don't need an attention to fulfill a mitzvah in order to fulfill the mitzvah. But in order to violate a prohibition, you do need a kavanah. And Mishnayot, which seem to say outright that you do require a kavanah, Rabbi says, no, that just meant a bare minimal a kavanah to do the act which constitutes a mitzvah. Now, the end of the sugya might imply that uh, we go back to the Mishnah, because it brings an earlier rule by a rabbi who came be, uh, before Rabbi, um, where it says the final two lines, Amar le Rebbe Zeira le Shamaye. Rebbe Zeira said to his uh, servant, Ichavein v'takali, have kavana, have intent, and blow the shofar for me. Almekesavar mashmiya by kavana. Consequently, he holds that the person blowing the shofar must have intent, and that's how the sugya ends. So while that might seem like it calls Rebbe's rule into a question. The overwhelming feel of this hagia, uh, of this uh, passage, is that mitzvot do not require an uh, attention, and not just the mitzvah of shofar, but also clearly the mitzvah of the shema, um, mitzvah sitting in the sukkah, and the fact that it raises uh, challenges against Rava's rule from a uh, various mitzvot and not just uh, shofar, which seems in a imply that he uh, didn't limit this rule to shofar. And indeed, he learned it out from the mitzvah of matzah. So it's clear from this uh, sugya that not only does Rava hold mitzvot do not require intent to fulfill one's obligation, but that's the overwhelming feel of this uh, sugya. And when we look to other um, uh, sugyot, we see that Rava's rule is a given a dominance. Um, so for example, that's in the order, totally unrelated Mishnah. 
relates to Adaf Yomi from Mesechet Erevin. Says Mesechet Erevin, Hamotzi Tefillin. If someone finds a pair of uh, Tefillin of uh, phylacteries on a Shabbos in a place where you're not allowed to uh, carry, now what do you do? As we all know, they cost a lot of money, and you don't want to leave them out in a public uh, domain. So how do you uh, how do you save uh, not only this expensive but this holy object? You I can't just leave it out. So machisim zug zug. So you wait. What you do is you wear it pair by pair. You know, one hair, one arm. You bring it. Go back out. Put in another hand, head set, another arm set. So you take it one set at a time. Rabban Gamliel mer shnayim shnayim. Rabban Gamliel. Gamliel says you can take out two pairs at a time. You can do two headsets and two arm ones. Um, that's what you do. So this is a dispute about a very specific set of halachot tefillin and what you're allowed to carry on a Shabbos. And when we look at the beginning of the Bavliya Sugya on this Mishnah, which is not here, but you have in the sources, source number seven, we see that the original understanding of these two uh, views is uh, totally about laws of Shabbos and Tefillin. So first it says, my Kassavar. So what is, what are the, you know, what are they, what's the rule, what's the, uh, what is behind these two opinions? What do they hold here? If you hold that, uh, that uh, Shabbos is the time to wear Tefillin, you take one pair. And then it says, well, maybe it's a machloket about how many, how many places on the head is, are there to wear Tefillin. And it says, well, maybe it's about how can you save articles on a Shabbos? Can you only uh, save them in the way you normally wear them uh, during the week? So meaning this machloket is understood within the confines of the laws of Shabbat and Tefillin. Then in the second half of the Talmudic passage, it suddenly introduces a new uh, factor. Then it says, well, if you want, you could say, Kule Alva Shabbos Zaman Tefillin. Maybe everyone actually thinks that you can wear tefillin on a Shabbos. Ah, there is a Mishnah wear tefillin on Shabbos. And what's the dispute about in this Mishnah? Why does the first thing in the Mishnah say you can only bring one pair of tefillin? The Rebbe and Gamil say you can wear two pairs of tefillin. The Machlok is about mitzvot, sericho, kavanak, and the palgin. They argue about whether mitzvot require in attention. So one holds mitzvot do require kavana, and therefore he holds you can wear two sets of tefillin, because as long as you don't have kavana to do the mitzvah, it's like you're wearing an ornament on your head and your arm, but you're not doing the mitzvah. Whereas the one who holds you can only wear one pair of tefillin, holds that mitzvot do not require kavana. But then the, the Kimara goes on. E buys Ama, and if you want, I can say, Kule Amalot Saitlo by Kavana. Everyone actually agrees with Rabba that mitzvot do, do not require a Kavana. You, everyone agrees you don't need Kavana to do a mitzvah. And what's their dispute about in the Mishnah? Whether you can violate not adding to mitzvot with a Kavana. Something that we saw in the Sugi and Rosh Hashanah. And then it says, if you want, 
You know, you can say everyone agrees that mitzvot do not require a kavana, and everyone agrees that uh, you don't need a kavana to violate not adding to mitzvot when it's, when it is the right time, or there's a beauty is when it is the right time, when it's when it's not the right time. So what do we see from here? Why did I bring this to show you that not only did our sugya and rosh hashanah go overwhelmingly like Rava against the Mishnah in uh, saying that mitzvot do not require a kavana, but even when we find a, a totally unrelated halachot, the Gemara assumes that everyone agrees mitzvot don't require a, a kavana, that mitzvot do not require requisite intent, uh, such that it was understood as the source of a totally unrelated halacha about tefillin and uh, Shabbos. So that is how much weight is uh, given to this rule of mitzvot lo tzrichot kavana. Now, we're going to see, um, not so much time left, that even though the Gemara is quite clear on its view, the later medieval rabbi has went back on this, you know, what seems very clear and makes this a matter of a debate again. But before we go to the medieval times, I want to spend a little more time in the Bible because we see, so Rabbi's rule of misvot lo trichot kavana, it contradicts the clear view of the Mishnah. I mean, the clear, uh, at first, a glance read of the Mishnah. Yes, the Gemara managed to fit Rava's view in to it, saying, well, when it said, uh, direct your heart, I didn't mean to do the mitzvah, I just meant to do the minimum act of hearing the shofar, the minimum act of reading the Pasuk, which has a Shema, the minimal act of reading the, the Megillah. But it does seem that Rava's view is very radical and that it goes against the view of the Mishnah. But what I want to show you next is that not only does it, uh, it go against the view of the Mishnah, it also goes against Rava's overwhelming uh, tendency with regard to other areas of halacha. For although Rava disregards the need for uh, a kavana when it comes to fulfilling a mitzvah, Rava is actually uh, very consistent in always reacquiring a kavana to uh, commit a violation, to be over and and Vera, uh, and often he introduces a need for intentional behavior when uh, committing an Avera, where others uh, did not be uh, for him. So just to bring you a few examples of Rava's, um, Rava's position with regard to uh, committing a sin, with regard to idolatry, for example. Um, there's a machlok at reaccorded, uh, debate reaccorded between uh, Abai and Rabbah. If someone worships idolatry out of love and fear, meaning they love a person or they love the form of idol worship, not clear what that means. Abai says this person's liable. Rabbah says he's absolved. Now, why? Abai marchayev de pacha. Abai says he's liable because he worshiped idols. I don't care why you did it. What does Rava say? Rava mar pater, i kebloa alev ilolo. You're only liable if you intend to accept this idol as a god. And if not, you're absolved. It's not the act 
that matters when you do a sin. It's what you think, what you uh, believe. And we find uh, similar uh, to debate uh, between Abai and Rabbah when it comes to the obligation of martyrdom. Um, Abai and Rabbah um, uh, debate how Hester, the a biblical heroine of Megillat Esther, could have married a non-Jew, a Chashverosh, even under uh, duress, and not uh, choose the path of, of martyrdom as mandated by rabbinic law. So Abaye says, so why, why was she not reacquired to give up her life? Abaye Amar Esther Karkolam, she was the ground of the earth. I mean, she was a passive object in this act. I mean, she wasn't active. She let the act be done to her. Rabamar Hanat Atman Shani. When the non-Jew wants it for their own benefit, it is uh, different. Um, if you don't uh, say this, how do we give uh, flyers to the Zoroastrian uh, temples, which apparently Jews did during Rabbah's time? Rather, since they're in a tent, it's for their personal benefit, it's a difference here too with Esther Ahashverosh didn't care about having Esther uh, violate her religion. It was it was for his own uh, pleasure, and uh, that's why Esther was not obligated to uh, give up her life. So for Rabbah, it's the intent uh, of the coercer, um, which is the primary uh, factor in defining the violation and the appropriate response by the Jew being upheld. And then he brings another case. If a non-Jew wants you to break uh, Shabbos, you can or cannot, according to Rava, depending on why the non-Jew wants you to. So if it's to feed an animal, a non-Jew wants you to uh, uh, cut grass to feed an animal, that's fine, because he just wants you to feed his animal. He doesn't care about you breaking halacha. But if he tells you cut the uh, falfa and uh, throw it into the river, let the Jew allow himself to be uh, killed. What's the reason? He wants to make him violate his religion. So we don't just care about the act. We care about why is this act uh, being done. What's the a purpose? What was the intent of either the a violator or the person making you do the violation? Um, and Rava also maintains a consistent requirement of an intentional action throughout the laws of uh, damages as well. I have many examples, but I'll just bring you one. So. Um, in the laws of a person watching over another a person's uh, property, um, if the um, if the uh, the property was uh, damaged, how does a, a Dodian absolve himself through an oath? So Rava says, "Shavua shelo I take an oath that I did not break it bekavana intentionally. As long as you didn't break it with a kavana." You're fine, you can absolve yourself with merely taking an oath. So in sum, we find that in a wide range of cases, Rava requires a kavana in a tent to render a person liable. And so therefore, this makes it all the more surprising that Rava de-emphasizes the role of a kavana in this avot. Um, and as we saw, the overriding, uh, 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 the overriding uh, 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 direction of the uh, of, of, uh, Bobli goes with Rava as well. Now, Rava himself made 
that this adjunction that to fulfill does not require an intent. To but to uh, commit a wrong does require an intent. So even though, as I said, it might one might think uh, it's a more natural uh, thing to require in a tent in the performance of mitzvot as the Mishnah seems to man a date. Um, there's actually uh, a real rationale for Rava's view. Because what we see from Rava that there is a clear break for him between uh, violations and mitzvot and ritual uh, practices. Because these, these really are all rituals that we refer to. Um, ritual of hearing the shofar, the ritual of reciting uh, the Shema, the ritual of reading Megillah. I would argue that Rava's principle and approach to ritual and anticipates a perspective that actually can a temp contemporary ritual uh, theorists uh, describe about the significance of ritual. That ritual is not really about what people uh, think. And it, it doesn't need to be tied to a person's internal uh, devotion. But rather, what makes ritual meaningful is that it's an act uh, shared by a particular group of people, from a particular uh, culture, who gives it a particular meaning at a time. Meaning, yeah, I can light uh, candles, but what is it about uh, Friday night, as the sun is about to go down, that makes lighting uh, candles meaningful? It's a fact that we, as a, a unity, have given it meaning. And at that time, that is a meaningful act. And it's an act which binds us all together as a, 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 a unity. When we blow the shofar, it can be a completely meaningless act. You're just making a sound from a lamb's horn. But what is it about? We all come together on a specific day, once a year, that gives it meaning. It's not necessarily what each of us individually think or believe. It's that we all come together. And we uh, do this act in this way at this time, and that is what gives it its meaning. So rather than necessitating a shared set of uh, beliefs or convictions, rituals are really performative um, entities in which in eternal thoughts and, and internal devotions of the people don't actually matter all that much. Blowing the shofar in shul is going to have meaning because we're all there uh, doing it together. So long as you do the act uh, correctly, a ritual is uh, valid and it uh, carries the collective meaning that the community uh, gives it. Um, and that really does make ritual its own uh, category, unlike other areas of halakha. Whereas if I, um, you know, drive into your car, it will matter very much if I meant to do it on a purpose or not. Was I a drunk when I did it? Um, what, was my car broken? Did I purposely do it? That will matter whether I have to uh, pay you back. And it will matter when I do a sin because that reflects on me as a person and basically whether, whether I'm wicked or not. When it comes to mitzvot, on the other hand, Rav seems to be in, uh, introducing this idea 
but it is very much about uh, a given community's um, ideas of what's meaningful, and that really brings people together. Now, this, you know, was certainly a critique of uh, Judaism for a long time. Early uh, Christians would uh, uh, critique Jews as being kind of overly obsessed with acts. That's just meaningless. You nitpick. You know, it's, there's, there's no heart, and it's just about the acts. With this, but I think what Rava's uh, principle here shows is, yes, acts are meaningful. And the fact that we have been uh, doing these same acts for, you know, over a thousand years, and the fact that I can go to any shul in the world, and we, you know, more or less pretty much do the same uh, thing, there is something very meaningful about that, that doesn't have to be tied to, did I mention, uh, do this, you know, for the purpose of this or that. Um, so I think, you know, rather than saying something uh, strange or counter in a, a tutip, I think Rav is making a very meaningful point about the significance of ritual mitzvot. Um, and this seems to be the view of the Gemara um, as well in uh, following Rav. And But yet, despite this uh, clear uh, preference that the Babli has for Rav's uh, opinion, when we turn to the medieval rabbis who interpret the Talmud and can continue to, can, to, to decide halacha, we see a shift kind of back to the view of the Mishnah. Um, and we find that while it may look like the Babli uh, settled the issue, when we go to the medieval Rishonim and the Achronim, we find that the issue is actually far from uh, settled. Um, and I'll just, you know, scan, I know I brought kind of overwhelming looking uh, sources, but I'll just read a few. So the, um, we have in source number eight, the riff with Yitzchak El Hasi of the Sefarad Milya, he makes no mention of Rava's rule at all. All he writes is, um, I think this is the next, let me make sure. Yeah, this is source number eight. All he writes is, if the person who hears a shofar has kavana, but the person who blows a shofar does not have kavana, or the person who blows a shofar has kavana, the person who hears does not have, a, have a kavana, Lo Yetza, you do not fulfill your obligation. And then the riff jumps to the end of the sugar. Amar, Amar le Rabbi Zera le Shemaya, he's kaveh to Takali. Rabbi Zera said to his uh, servant, have intent and blow the, the, the shofar for me. So So we see that you need a kavana. And the riff just completely leaves out rubber and this whole uh, crazy idea that mitzvot do not require uh, a kavana. And the riff just leaves it out and goes with the other view, mitzvot do require a uh, kavana. And that is the view of most of the Rishonim. Source number 10, the Milchamot Hashem, which is authored by Nachmanides Ram Aban. And he shows how, yeah, really mitzvot do not do require a kavana. And when Rava said this, meaning Rava never meant this was his own uh, opinion. He was just uh, saying what the father of uh, Shmuel would hold. But says the Ramban, this is not what Rava thinks. When Rava said this would imply one of the shofar to make use of his father's obligation, that's not Rava's view. And 
what does he do with this line? Well, that's an incorrect, that's, that's not true. Rabbah did hold mitzvot require a, a kavana. So therefore, says Ramban, it's not weird that the riff left it out because it, it was never actually a matter of, uh, of a debate. And this whole discussion here is like theoretical or whatever, but we do require a kavana. The Baal Me'or in source number nine, Rev Azirach Yahalevi, he is one of the few to go with the view of Rabbah. And he uh, generally, um, from what I have seen of him, he generally takes a, a, a shot, a more uh, plain uh, sense meaning of a Tagyot very often. And he writes, Lefum Sugya de Shamata, according to the Sugya that we saw, Mitz. Chavara ki Rabbah. It's a clearly like Rabbah. Damar, let's say, lo a kavana. For Rabbah holds, mitzvot do not require an attention, and said the Bama or it's a clear that that is the way the Gemara holds as well. And he says, and, and this and other opinions are not like Rabbah, but we hold like Rabbah. Um, so he's kind of the one lone uh, view which goes like Rava. When we see how the Lacha was uh, codified in source number eight by the Shulchan Arach, um, Rav Yosef Akairo, the Halacha is uh, codified as follow. If you're blowing the shofar to uh, teach uh, someone how to blow or to learn how to blow, meaning you're doing it to uh, practice and not to do the mitzvah, you have not fulfilled your obligation. And if you hear from a person who's just blowing to learn, you also don't fulfill your obligation. And, and likewise, if you blow the shofar to make music, meaning explicitly, not like Rava, um, and if you're blowing to make music and you don't intend to do the mitzvah, lo yatsah. You do not fulfill your mitzvah. And um, someone yeah. didn't quite hear what you said. Um, they're asking, who is it? Who is this that you're speaking of that does rule according to Rava? So the one, it's source number um, nine. The it says ha meor ha katan. That is a commentary on the riff um, by Rev uh, Zerachia Halevi, early medieval a commentary on the riff. And in source number 10, the Milchamot Hashem, that's Nachmanides, a commentary against the Baal Me'or, defending the riff from Zerachia Halevi's attacks. Anyone who knows a little bit about um, a biblical exegesis knows that the Ramaban does something a little uh, similar in his a biblical commentary where he uh, defends Rashi against Ibn Hezra. So Ramban, you know, kind of betting the old guard against the more shock readings. Yeah. Um, so anyways, source number nine, the Me'or HaKatan by Rev. Azarachia Halevi, that says, look, if you look through the, so it's clear that it goes like Rav. Rev. Zayra doesn't agree with, with Rav. The, it's clear that the sugya follows Rava. It's very clear. But the Melchamot in number 10, that's by Nachmanides, the Ramban, disagrees with the Bama Or, and the Shulchan Arach, number 8, in a codifying the Halacha, goes with the, goes with the Ajari, or goes with the Rith, goes with the Ramaban, and rules that you have to have a Kavana 
to do your mitzvah of shofar. So if you're if you blow the shofar to make music, or you hear the shofar from someone blowing to make music, you don't fulfill your obligation. And source number nine, the Taz, the Ture Zahab, explains the Shulchan Aruch's rule. Why is this? Tekaimelam kemanda amar mitzvot srichot kavana. Because we hold like the opinion which says mitzvot require a kavana. So although Rabba was perhaps making inroads into a new view of ritual. We see that, you know, ultimately, um, I, I think there is a little bit of a, well, shouldn't I have to believe what I do? Shouldn't if I do a mitzvah, I have to, you know, want to do it for the sake of a mitzvah. It's not enough to just do it by rote, just do an act. I should know I'm uh, doing a mitzvah. And that seems to be the, the, the position which won out. Um, however, I do find a lot of uh, beauty and a truth to Rubba's rule. And, as, uh, and in the role of ritual of, of, of bringing us uh, together and uh, really making us a, a coherent religious uh, community. Um, so we got that in in an hour, I'm impressed. So everyone has uh, questions. <laughs> Anything is unclear, um, please. Um, um, we do have some more in the chat um, regarding Rabbi's opinion about community doing mitzvot together and the intention being expressed by them performing the mitzvot together. Um, what about an experience like this year when many individuals are at home davening and performing mitzvot by ourselves, especially for high holidays? Mm -hmm. That is like, I, as I was uh, saying everything, I was that was, you know, kind of, in my head, but um, we can't do it the way we normally do. But I think, at least I find something kind of meaningful that even us all in our homes, we're, there's something that binds us together, that we're all doing the same act on the same day, at the same time. I mean, just like other mitzvot, which we do in our home. You know, when we light the a candle, it's a very a private act, but it has meaning because of when we do it because everyone is uh, doing it, maybe not with me, but, you know, we're all uh, uh, doing it. I think there's something which kind of transcend your own personal experience to bring us kind of in a collective uh, community, even just the feel of it. Um, but yes, look, yeah. health comes first. So. <laughs> and that's a value in uh, Chazal as well. That's another shear because during Bayat Shani, the second uh, temple time, that was certain that was not a value. And actually, uh, giving over one's life was more value than preserving one's life. But it's for another time. Okay. Great. Um, so it is now two o'clock Eastern time. So uh, that is also a nice note to end on. Um, thank you, Dr. Strauss-Schick, for this interesting mm -hmm. and inspiring class. Thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. Our next class is tonight at 8 p.m. with the final part of a series by Sarah Zager using sources ranging from the Talmud to Maimonides' Mishnah Torah to the Musar movement. We'll explore how our characters are formed and what tools we might have um, when we decided that we need to change our dispositions and tendencies for the better. Tomorrow's class will also be at 1 p.m. with Rabbi Silber, which is a close reading of Akedah Yitzchak, the purpose of this test and its place within the book of Genesis. If you haven't yet registered for either of these classes, you can find all of the relevant information and links on our website at www.drisha.org classes 
or watch live at www.drisha.org live. Thank you again to Dr. Strauch Schick. Um, the, the chat is just giving lots of, lots of compliments for your class. Um, and then I will be looking at the screen, so. Yes, and then thank you for everyone who attended and we hope to see everyone here soon at one of our upcoming classes at Trisha. Thank you all so much and I'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye everyone.